0: This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here for the 25th Sunday in ordinary time, otherwise known. What is this? The
1: second Sunday past the feast of the Holy Cross. The
0: second Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Cross. Depends on how you count it. Because that's true. According to the Byzantine tradition, the Sunday after the Holy Cross is called the Sunday after the Holy Cross. But the second Sunday after the Holy Cross is actually called the first Sunday after the Holy Cross.
1: Oh, that's confusing.
0: Yeah, so okay. but here we are on the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time, according to the Novus Ordo <laughs> counting, and most importantly, we are in this time period after Holy Cross, which means Bible people, liturgy lovers, that we are focused very much in light of the cross on the Nativity of the Lord. Everything from the from the Feast of the Holy Cross on September fourteenth, everything heads towards, uh, towards Bethlehem. And uh, of course, this this movement toward Bethlehem, we talked about this, of course, every year when we get to this point, we talk about this. And we will be saying this, I'll be saying this multiple and many times over the coming weeks and and months. And that is that from a liturgical standpoint, the cross and the crib, if you will, the passion of the Lord, his sacrifice on the cross and his nativity in, in Bethlehem is understood as the same divine mystery. It is the mystery of God's mercy, which we are very much focused upon today. But from a gospel standpoint, focused on this in terms of what Jesus is going to, and that is doing to Jerusalem for the passion, right? But we, from a liturgical standpoint, can then enter into this understanding that church is placing this before us to understand the mystery of the of the nativity of christ okay so it's i know that might be a little bit foreign to some people or you may not thought about things like that before but um but it's it's there and i and i hope that as we develop this over the coming weeks you'll start to get a, gain a deeper appreciation of the church's understanding of the feast of the nativity of the lord there you have it
1: cool so let's jump in
0: give us our passages Annie.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the first reading for this weekend is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verses six through nine. The response to Oriel psalm is taken from Psalm 145. The gospel is Matthew, chapter 20, verses one through 16. And the epistle is St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. We've moved out of Romans.
0: There we have it. At least
1: temporarily. I don't know if we're going to go back to Romans, but we're in Philippians this week. Chapter 1, verses 20 through 24, and then verse 27. So there you have it. You ready to go in Isaiah? I I
0: certainly am, but I'm just thinking, man, we have to have a talk at the ICC called the cross in the crib. Oh yeah, right? there's
1: um there's a Carol Houselander book called The Passion of the Infant Christ. Ooh, so good. Nice. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, Isaiah 55. Versus... Isaiah
1: 55 verses six through
0: nine. If you're new to Sunday Gospel Reflections, and you're not a member of the Institute of Catholic Culture, come on over, sign up as a member so that you can have access to all this great. We have Father Spitzer's coming. Uh, yeah. to open up our new uh, curriculum year we're about to announce our curriculum year by the way the drum beat the drum roll should be starting in your homes you oh, know it's coming it's coming, oh, it's coming i've been
1: hearing it i've been hearing it
0: yeah that's yeah, not the only thing you're hearing in that rancid <laughs> there annie here we go isaiah 55
1: oh true you got to be a member so that when we have the cross in the crib talk that's right you're ready for it okay here we go isaiah 55 verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call him while he is near. Let the scoundrel forsake his way and the wicked his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord for mercy. To our God who is generous and forgiving. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. There All right. It. Yeah, there we have it. it. Um I think I think you need to have a talk too, Father. Um let the scoundrel forsake his way. I like that. There you go. Nice. I think that sounds pretty catchy.
0: Scoundrels and such. Yes. <laughs>
1: So good. Okay, so let's get our bearings first. Tell us yes. about this part of Isaiah and to whom is he speaking in this passage?
0: Okay, so what's the answer? Annie, you know, you're going to give me the answer. The answer is always, when we're talking about the prophets, the Babylonian exile. So right. again, principles, 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 turn your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 1. Keep your hand on 55, but go back to Isaiah 1. If you don't do this regularly, guys, then you're not really t- taking, you know, learning these. Our, our goal is here to give you principles. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and the righteous glorious, and glorious king Hezekiah, uh, kings of Judah. Judah. Right, Got the it. vision. So here's, so here's what's what's uh, taking place. Now you know Hezekiah is a good example. Hezekiah is uh, reigning just after the Assyrian army conquers the north, right? Mm-hmm. And the Assyrians are going to then be conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come down, and they're going to eventually conquer Jerusalem. So Isaiah is living in this time period of impending doom Jerusalem has not fallen yet and yet it's not looking good right things are not looking good out there so but then Isaiah is divided not only into the time period in which Isaiah lived but he also prophesies what's going to take place which gives us the second half of his book which is the book of consolation which we are in in 55 so chapter 55 of Isaiah is the second half of his book in which he's calling Israel to repentance for what has happened. Right, the first part, chapters one to thirty-seven ish, are Isaiah talking to people that are in Jerusalem, that are in the Holy Land, who have yoked themselves to the false gods, who have find themselves in sin, and Isaiah is saying, "This is not going to go well." Right, repent of your ways. But now, after chapter 40, he's looking forward to a people that are in exile, who God is preparing to bring back to the promised land, to restore their fortunes. If only, right, why, Lord, are we still here? Why, Lord, am I still suffering? Why, Lord, why, Lord, why, Lord? That's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 55. And Isaiah is saying, well, there's a simple reason for that. And that is that the Lord is going to act in your life, if you're willing to enter in a relationship with him, and this is fundamentally important to our entire study today, as it is with every study, that is that God is not a dictator, right? We always want, Lord, why do you allow this to happen? Why why didn't you intervene? Right? Why why you gotta let somebody some um, scoundrel talking about scoundrels become the president of the United States and call himself a Catholic? Well, okay, Father, I'm making political statements now, but you know why do we allow the scourge of abortion in the United States, Lord? Why didn't you intervene and do something about this? And, you know, and this is so this is fundamentally important that our our theology, our scripture study, everything is is theocentric, God-centered, who God is, and we know that God is love, and love is always lived in an atmosphere of freedom, so He'll never impose Himself on us. Um, he'll never force us to be saved. And here we're talking about a a physical saving, if you will, a a return from Babylon, from captivity to freedom. And Isaiah is saying, look, that's only going to happen. You're only going to find that physical freedom that you're seeking if there's first a spiritual freedom. If you begin using your bodies for truth and goodness, and your soul for communion, then you open yourself up into a relationship in which God will intervene because you've invited him to do so, right? You want him to act in your life. And that's really what we have here, Annie, in this passage from Isaiah.
1: Okay, great. So let's look at some of these lines in here. Yeah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call him while he is near. What does it mean that we need to seek him while he may be found? I mean, he's not like playing hide and seek with us or something. Well, yeah,
0: the Lord's in the whole hide and seek game, you know. No, no, he really is actually, right? So oftentimes, oftentimes the Lord seems distant to us. I remember those words of Mother Teresa saying, where are you now, Lord, right? Yeah. So in our spiritual life, there does seem to be this, you know, back and forth with the Lord as there isn't any relationship. But St. Jerome says... On a kind of a more surface level, he says, Seek him while he can be found, while you are in the body, and as long as an opportunity for penitence is provided. Yeah. Hmm. So he's saying, Look, you have, you've given this, you've been given this time, use it wisely to do what is available to you. That's why we're given this time in our life, right? But, Hmm. but there in, in Isaiah, in Babylon, in exile, Isaiah is saying, Look, you're in exile because of what you did, but you remain in exile for what you're doing. Hmm. So you have to choose how you're gonna live your life. Yeah. Seek the Lord, right? Do something about it. Don't don't stand there. Well, here we are, right? No, seek the Lord out. Invite him. Do something about the situation you find yourself in. I I was also just looking, I always like to look back to the church fathers on these on these passages we're given, because they have the this insight and wisdom that we, um, you know, I don't know. It's just like, you know, and St. Augustine, I came across this for St. Augustine. And he's it's it's classic. I don't know. This must be from the confessions because it's classic St. Augustine's confessions material. But it's not, if it's not from the confessions. I, but he says this, it's a little convoluted, but stay with it. If therefore he who is sought can be found, why was it said, seek his face evermore? Or is he perhaps still to be sought even when he is found? Hmm. For so ought we to seek incomprehensible things. Lest we should think that we have found nothing, who could find only how incomprehensible is the thing that we are seeking? I love, I love the (laughs) custom. Why then does he, why then does he so seek if he comprehends that What he seeks is incomprehensible, Hmm. unless because he knows that he must not cease as long as he's making progress in the search itself of the incomprehensible things is becoming better and better by seeking so great a good, which is sought in order to be found and is found in order to be sought. For it is sought that it may be found sweeter and it is found in order that it may be sought more eagerly.
1: That's funny. It is beautiful because I was I was going to ask, you know, based on these last lines, you know, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. And I'm like, do we even bother? To try to understand God then, like, if it's so far away, like, but it's remember, almost like, what's the point, right? Remember,
0: remember, Annie, and all of our participants here, they're asking the same question. And remember that we're talking, Isaiah's talking to a people in in, in, in the Babylonian exile, right? And their ways have not always been, you know, like the ways of King Hezekiah. Right, so they're in Babylon and they're tempted with all of the things around them. I, I you know, the story of the Babylonian exile is so is so applicable today. Right, that, that we live in a in a context, we live in a society, we live in an atmosphere, we live in a culture, and it's so easy to be to succumb to the ways of the culture around us and to begin to be assimilated into that place. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Say, be careful. You know, turn from your wicked thoughts and turn to the Lord. You have a choice of how you're going to live your life, right? Because the Lord is merciful, and I, I think, Andy, that's a, a point we've got to bring up here: is that 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 when we talk about mercy. I think we oftentimes have a misunderstanding of this kind of person quaking in their boots. Yeah. The the mercy of God is Him seeing us in the state that we're in and then doing something about it, right? He stands that are always merciful, always willing to act in our lives, but again, in an atmosphere of freedom. As Pope Francis said, I think I've quoted this about 4,000 times in this program, um, because it's the one quote I really like from Pope Francis. Um, And it's that mercy is love in action. Mm -hmm. Mercy is love in action. I think it's a very beautiful way of saying it because it's theocentric, right? God is love, St. John says. Mercy is his love toward us who find ourselves in exile, who find ourselves in need, who find ourselves in a wayward way, right? Not walking in his paths, but in other paths. He's standing there generous, willing to forgive, but willing to say, meet us where we are, if only we would allow him to do that right i think then that's very applicable to our gospel by right? the lord meets us where we are in so many places in our lives and pours out his generosity to us but then when he pours out his generosity to us it's so it's so easy to become i uh, to start looking around and why, why am i not like that person why am i not like that person we'll have a chance to talk about that re- regarding the gospel but here isaiah speaks to these people who are then in this place right they're suffering they're 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 not let's just say from a physical material standpoint, they're not thriving their neighbor over here, you know, Finkelstein uh, living in Babylon is doing diamond trading with the Babylonian guy. Right. And he's doing great. Right. But, but, but this guy over here who's, who's meditating on this is suffering. He finds himself trying to follow the ways of the Lord, but it's so tempting to do the Finkelstein thing. Right. Ooh. And, uh, Sorry, someone's gonna email me, Sammy.
1: It's a great look, name. Trust. I know
0: Carnazzo is a Sicilian name, and, and, and <laughs> so okay.
1: Oh, well, Lord. On that note, on that maybe note. we should look at the uh, the responsorial psalm. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. Actually, that's something that I I was looking back earlier in Isaiah fifty five the couple of verses because the beginning of this chapter is that famous you know everyone who thirsts come to the waters he who has Mm -hmm. no money Mm -hmm. come buy and eat and then later on and in there like between there and and our passage he talks about behold you shall call nations that you know not and nations Mm -hmm. that knew you not shall run to you i mean it's like this, this sort of everyone, you're going to be a light to the nation sort of idea. And I think that that comes out here and the response. The Lord is near to all who call upon him.
0: But notice who call upon him, right? Who yes. uh, This theme comes up over and over again in these passages of being willing to do something about the mm-hmm. place you find yourselves in, right? You're in Babylon. You're in exile. Things don't look so good. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to go and, and start doing diamond trading with the local Babylonians, or are you going to get your soul right for the Lord so that you can be restored to your home and rebuild the temple of God? Yeah. St. Bede, the venerable Bede says, but we must look attentively at this, that not everyone who seems to pray before other people is proven to ask or to seek or to knock at the entrance of the heavenly kingdom in the sight of the searcher of hearts. The prophet would not have said the Lord is near to all who call on him in truth unless he recognized that there are some who call on the Lord but not in truth. they do indeed call upon the Lord in truth who do not who do not contradict in their lives what they say in their prayers. yeah hmm. so again, this is going to come to fruition in the gospel passage that we have today but but I think it's suffice to say here as we're looking at isaiah fifty five and Uh, Psalm 145, I do recommend that you go back and you read through all of Psalm 145. As Annie was pointing out, reading through all of Isaiah 55, that getting that context is going to help you tremendously in understanding the passage that we're given. But here, this theme of doing something, yes, seek the Lord while he may be found. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. Yeah, and so if the Lord seems distant at times to us, He's it's it, that distance is oftentimes allowed by, by the us. Lord. What's that?
1: <laughs> I said created by us. <laughs> it's
0: cre- it's do created by us and allowed by the Lord that we might that there may be a cultivation of our heart to yeah. cry out to Him, to call out to Him from our heart in this in the situation that we find ourselves in, and then to discover how near He is. And I think this is this is um, this is fundamentally important that this nearness of the Lord for us that we need to begin to relate to the Lord as He desires us to relate to Him as as our heavenly Father as our best friend. Uh, I was just giving this homily uh, to my, my parishioners. I said, "Look, is Jesus your best friend?" Is he the one that you speak to and allow to speak to you on a daily basis where you're reading the scriptures and praying and c- calling out to him? Is he that person in your life? Or are other things, right? Babylon, are other things crowding into your life that's causing such a distance from the Lord that you're unable to recognize his nearness, mm-hmm. his presence? As is you know, Jesus is pray always. Right, always well. How how can we understand that unless we are meant to be in regular conversation in, in in this constant? You know, Annie and I, you know, we're friends, right? We're friends. And and um, how often do we speak during the day? Sometimes, God. yeah, two three times a day. It's not uncommon. In the morning I wake up in the morning, I got to call Annie, or I'm on her radio show, or she's coming on here. We got to call them touch base, and we're talking about the Lord. Friendships develop because of that kind of regular presence in one another's lives. When we don't have that regular presence in one another's lives, then it becomes difficult to speak with one another. The person seems distant to us. I can think of even family members right now who are quite distant from me. And, And why are they distant from me? Well, maybe our ways of life are very different, but ultimately not only are our ways of life very different, but we've allowed the communication to cease. Probably because our ways of life are very different, right? But how are, how how are we to restore those that relationship? How am are we to restore a common way of life in truth? And that is through our regular conversation with one another. The Lord is near to all of those who, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where the venerable beads uh, inside of things is very beautiful. They do indeed call upon the Lord in truth, who do not contradict in their lives what they say in their prayers, right? So in our, do something. Call out to the Lord who is near. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now is the time of that seeking. And and, and before we go, Annie, I know we need to go to the gospel. Maybe you have something else to point. But, but remember, in light of the Holy Cross and in light of the Nativity coming, Seek the Lord while the Lord is going to come. And this is now we can begin to triangulate things because not only is the nativity to be seen in light of the cross, but it is also understood liturgically in light of the second coming. The Lord is coming. Are we going to be prepared for his coming?
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I guess the only thing that I was going to, to bring up aside from that is, you know, he said it says here in the go- in the in the responsorial psalm the lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness is good to all and compassionate toward all his works and and i just think of that in light of those who are living lives of sin right now i mean we're all living lives of sin in our own ways but there are those that are further away and those you know and and yet there's still time there's still time while the Lord can be found, you know, yeah. like that. I think that'll come out in the gospel, too. But yeah. those who are far away from the Lord now, there's still a chance.
0: One of the tricks of the devil is to convince us that the Lord is not near at hand. Right. And that we begin to lose hope. The loss of hope is a, one of the marks of the evil one. It is to, to corrupt The revelation of who God is, which is what the evil one wants, right? Um, Remember the Egyptian, the, the Israelites out after the Exodus, out in the desert, who say, what did you bring us out here to starve us to death, right? So to twist the nature of the Lord into one who is distant, who is one who is unapproachable, who one who doesn't care, who doesn't love, who is not near, who is not compassionate and gracious and merciful, Right, and I begin to believe that due to my sin, I am unable to approach the Lord. That is false. Jesus comes. Jesus comes to the paralytic. He comes to the blind. Remember the story of the of the uh, prodigal son. It's the father who goes running out to the son as soon as he turns. No matter what our sins are, no matter how far we are from the Lord, if we're willing to turn to Him, He will come running to us. He's not far from us. It is we who have placed ourselves at a distance from him. And Mm -hmm. it only takes that slight. I oftentimes say to people in confession that we never be ashamed of turning to the Lord in the midst of our sin. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There is no point in which the Lord is not near at hand. If we would turn even in the midst of our sin, then we find ourselves in this place. It's there that we need to begin to turn to the Lord. Yeah. And so that he can bring healing in the midst of our fall. And then we can rejoice in that moment that we find the Lord as our benefactor, as our savior, as our heavenly physician, as the merciful one, as the compassionate one. We discover who the Lord is in our life when he finds us in the state so far distant from him.
1: You know, it's funny you bring up the prodigal son, because I was thinking our gospel passage this weekend is kind of like, in a, way, in a way, kind of Matthew's version of the prodigal son. I think, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit off there, but he doesn't have the prodigal son in his gospel. So this is kind of, I don't know, kind of a similar theme. Anyway, yeah, shall we read it?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about the church. It's all about God's interaction with us and our tendency in response to that, to that interaction, what the Lord actually does for us and how sad, how oftentimes our response to that gift is, is not what it ought to be. But here we are in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 20.
1: 20. Yeah. Verse one. Here we go. Jesus told his disciples this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, the landowner saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. So they went off. And he went out again around noon and around three o'clock and did likewise. Going out about five o'clock, the landowner found others standing around and said, why do you stand here idle all day? They answered, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you too go into my vineyard. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, summon the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and ending with the first. When those who had started about five o'clock came, each received the usual daily wage. So when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also got the usual wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last ones worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who bore the day's burden and the heat. He said to one of them in reply, my friend, I am not cheating you. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what is yours and go. What if I wish to give this last one the same as you? Or am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? Thus, the last will be first and the first will be last. All right. This is like one of those ouch passages. I mean, I feel like we've had several weeks of these where it's like, ouch, man, that hurts. But it's, you know, obviously stuff that we need to hear. But um, just to kind of get a sense of context here, we've actually between last week and this week skipped over the entirety of Matthew chapter 19. I'm thinking probably for thematic purposes, given that we've had this kind of, you know, Uh, theme going through the past couple of weeks, but for our purposes in understanding the context, what have we missed in uh, Matthew 19?
0: Well, I think most importantly, rather than getting into the content of what Jesus is teaching, although he continues teaching about the kingdom of God, most importantly for us from a kind of progression of the gospel standpoint is chapter 19, verse 1. If you miss this, you miss the whole boat. Okay, because the boat left the dock, literally, literally, (laughs) Uh, or I should say the uh, the clan left. I don't know what the image is. You know, bus (laughs) left the station literally. So chapter we're going to we're going to go chapter 19, verse one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So there we have Matthew chapter 19, verse one gives us a critical moment in the gospel because up to that point, I mean, Jesus has visited Jerusalem, but this is his final. This is now the result of what we saw. You know, he goes up on Mount Tabor, the transfiguration, and that kind of triggers this movement now towards Jerusalem in chapter 17 and 18. He's kind of going back into the region of, of, of the Sea of Galilee before, you know, he's probably going back to honestly to tell the apostles Get your bags packed. We're going back to Jerusalem. And now all of this instruction about the kingdom is taking place. We've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks, right? Jesus is going to the throne city. He's got an idea of where he's going to be enthroned. That is on the cross. The apostles have their idea of what it's going to look like. And um, and now he makes his way down uh, down the valley from the Sea of Galilee. This is now the tribal allotment of Israel. Here you can see on your screen. This is the original allotment to the different tribes. and um and um, but of course, by the time of Je- by the time that Jesus is walking around Palestine, things look a little different. So here's the general look of what it was basically like by the time of the Lord. But nevertheless, you'll notice this area of ju of Judah. Mm -hmm. judah was the tribe that the kings came from right david was from the tribe of judah jesus is a descendant of david is from the tribe of judah judah is the throne city and therefore is also the name of the entire empire if you will of of david and solomon and becomes the name of the region the time of christ the area where the jews live the judeans right the jews live versus the samaritans in the area of galilee and so forth judea is kind of that whole area and 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 including all you know by the by the roman control but now jesus goes down this the the thing and says judah beyond the jordan well why do we why are they talking about judea beyond the jordan because at the time of christ the, it was a, a different territory, I
1: don't know.
0: Uh, okay. k- right? And so, but but nevertheless, from a biblical standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, we can talk about Judah's expansion, power expansion over time. So the Babylon exile happens when the Jews return from Babylon. The area that they populate is called Judah, or the area of Judah, so Judea, right? the area so that would have included all sorts of lands east of the jordan wherever the jews are found that's kind of the idea and jesus comes back down here most likely right in this region right here because that's where the baptismal site is this is kind of jesus did a lot of hanging out here where john the baptist was where the essenes were where the right where the qumran uh, caves were found it's all right here just on the northern tip of the dead sea as the as the as the Jordan River dumps into here, um, so Annie, that's my simple way of saying that's what's going on in Chapter 19. A number of conversations ensue in Chapter 19 with the Pharisees who are trying to trip up the Lord, trying to get him to do something he shouldn't do, while Jesus is saying, "Yeah, whatever, I'll deal with you, but I also need to deal with my family, my the apostles, because I needed them to get ready for what's coming." Right, and what is coming is, of course, the Passion. The passion narrative, and thus all of these conversations about the kingdom of God, what it looks like, what's it going to look like when Jesus goes to Jerusalem as an enthroned there, Yeah, mm-hmm. And that's why we have these parables that come up because this is what the apostles are asking. Look at chapter eighteen, verse one. Well, I need to go back very quickly to a, a, a couple of verses we've looked at, Chapter sixteen. Verse twenty-one. This is Jesus's perspective, right? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. On the third day, be raised up. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Right there's the two perspectives. Jesus is gonna go get enthroned on the cross, and and the apostles are like, No, no, no! We're we're gonna win, Jesus. We're not letting that happen. We got swords and we're gonna go to battle. Right. And then chapter 18, verse one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who gets to be enthroned when you go to Jerusalem? Who gets to be at your right and your left? Right. And then, of course, of course, the mother of these two of of James and John get into this business, too. Right. In chapter 20, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 20, then the mother of Jesus came up to him with with her sons and kneeling before him said she has something. And he said to her, what what do you want? And he said, command that my two sons of mine sit, one at your right and one at your left. Well, notice, look back at at verse 17 of this passage. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 of his disciples. And on the way, he said to them, behold, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered up. This chief priest said, okay, and he'll be mocked and scourged. And on the third day, he'll rise. This is now the third time he said it, right? He said it in 16. Mm -hmm. In 16. 21 he said it again in 17:22, mm-hmm. and now he says it again in 18 verse 17 you want to write that in your bible okay these so jesus is saying guys here's what we're going to jerusalem to do and the apostles are all having another conversation on the side they're not actually yeah. hearing what he's saying they're not in, letting it penetrate and all the while he's jesus is telling them. Here's what our kingdom's going to look like. Here's what it's going to when I when I go to Jerusalem, here's what we're going to establish. Okay? And therefore our passage today.
1: Yeah. And like chapter 21 is the entry into Jerusalem. I mean, we're like right there. We're right there. Yeah. We're right there. So, let's look at this parable a little bit. Father, what do you what do you think is the usual daily wage in the kingdom of heaven?
0: Um, I think in California it's like if you're like a flipping burgers and McDonald's, it's like 25 yeah, yeah. bucks an hour now. Yeah, is it really? Make it all fair. Wow.
1: Yeah. No, well, no, I course. think
0: it's. That was ridiculous. Uh, no, uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria says, He gives to all their single denarius, which is the grace of the Spirit, perfecting the saints in conformity with God and impressing the heavenly stamp on their souls and leading them to life. And immortality is the gift of God's life within us, yeah, being poured into us generously. And um, and uh, I don't know if that's the answer to the question you were looking for,
1: Annie. But you know, I kind of figured that was going to be the answer when I asked the question. It's all about
0: a relationship, yeah, right, and being willing to do something. In relationship, the Lord has done everything for us. He's offered himself to us. Are we going to turn and receive that gift and offer ourselves back to him? That's what this constant repetition of the kingdom of heaven is like. He's saying to the apostles, get out of your mind, Herod and the Romans. Get out of your mind all of your concepts of worldly thrones, of the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Get all of this out of your mind. My kingdom is... Above all of that, remember what was. What did Isaiah say? As as high as the heavens are above the earth, so higher my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. That's why these parables are given to us. They can start to begin to see what it's going to be like. Why? And I said this multiple times over the last couple of weeks. They're heading down to Jerusalem. You got the Pharisees. You got crowds around him. Isn't that what it says? Uh, now, chapter nineteen, verse one. And sorry, verse two, and large crowds followed him. There are thousands of people. They're gathering around him, and the apostles are like, "Hey, what about me, Jesus? Don't forget about me." And they, this goes so far that they begin pushing people away. In chapter twenty, notice chapter nineteen, verse thirteen. Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. You know, keep them away. Too many people. Lord, what about me? What about my role in your kingdom? Why are you talking to all of these other people? Why are you going out to new people and allowing them to join us? When you've been in Galilee and they've been talking with the Pharisees. Remember the groups around Jesus. There's his closest friends, right? There's Peter, James, and John. There's the the twelve. And then there's those people on the fence, or maybe we could say there's the 70 disciples. Mm-hmm. And then there's the people that are on the fence. And then there's the, the, there's the, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees and the Herodians. And they're, Jesus is pulling them to him. And the Herodians and Pharisees are picking them off. They're being torn in two. And the apostles are in the midst of saying, don't forget about me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Right, and so now we have the parable, because Jesus is heading up, and there's new people, there's guys joining him from Jericho. Jericho is right there. Jesus hasn't spent a lot of time in this region. He's gone up to Jerusalem, he's gone back up to Galilee, he spent most of his time in Galilee. There's people that have been hearing a lot about him, maybe not a lot of people seeing him, and now there's new people joining him, and now the apostles are getting 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 a little bit jealous, yeah,, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I understand. I'd probably. You you think you might feel the same way? Actually, that brings up a question that was occurring to me. So I mentioned how I was sort of thinking about this as like Matthew's version of the prodigal son, and I remember when we discussed the prodigal son last lectionary cycle when we were in the Gospel of Luke, and you were talking about how the sort of historical level of that, you know, like you've got israel as the older brother and right. then the younger brother is like the gentiles do you think we can could we understand this parable of the vineyard in in that sense oh, too
0: well not only are we to understand it in the, i mean not only can we but we are we are to understand it right the the fathers yeah. of the church lead us in this direction that the elder brothers are, are the jews right the mm-hmm. who have received everything from the lord right that's the the elder brother right in the in the in the prodigal son but now here we have those who came and were paid who've been working for a long time and you can understand that certainly in terms of the apostles which i think is probably the most important part at this moment jesus's ministry is what he's talking about but the fathers of the church apply this more generally to the old testament church and to the gentiles coming in to that situation right because the gospel is being written Remember. Is not being written down as a simple historical account. It is that, but it is it is a catechesis for those who are now entering the church. So why is this passage chosen by Matthew? Not only because Jesus said it at this time, but because he wants the 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 Christians to understand. Hey, you've been in the field of the Lord for a while now. It's been what, what thirty years since the Lord ascended to heaven, right? And uh, I ought to be getting my wages, right? But now you got new people coming in and and hey you, you know Polycarp Ignatius just ordained this guy a bishop and I've been standing here this whole time. It's mm-hmm. happening in real time for the early church so we can we can start to understand this in stages but certainly we can understand the Old Testament church the Jews of the Old Testament the early christians and so forth but more importantly i think for our passages here is jesus talking to the disciples and then also then we can hopefully before we're done here apply this to our situation in the church today
1: well that's kind of where i wanted to go with this because we find ourselves in a particular liturgical context right now and we've had these these past three weeks while well, including this week um you know we had two weeks ago the the passage on on fraternal correction and and how to continually go back to somebody that has wronged you to try to get them to turn from their ways and then and then last week mm-hmm. we had Jesus talking mm-hmm. about no you don't forgive seven times you forgive 77 times and he tells the parable of the wicked servant you know <laughs> like if you're holding somebody in bondage well that's going to be demanded right. of you someday um and then we have this passage where, where we hear about the generosity of, of the owner of the vineyard and, you know, you've got these laborers that are kind of envious, kind of jealous of, you know, the people that are coming along lately. This, um, yeah. I mean, what do you think altogether this all teaches us about the kingdom? Let
0: me share what you St. seen, John Chrysostom. Okay. And then maybe we can apply it to what you're asking. He says, "But the question is whether the first ones, who were righteous and pleased God, and who shone brightly from their labours through the whole day, at the end are possessed by the lowest vice, envy, and jealousy. Mm-hmm. For they saw the others enjoying the same rewards, and said, These last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who bore the weight and the heat of the day." even though they were not going to be penalized or to suffer any loss of their own pay. With these words, they were angry and displeased at the blessings others received. That, that was proof of envy and jealousy. And what is more, the master of the house is justifying and defending himself to the speaker, convicts him of wickedness in the lowest envy, saying, Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last as I give to you. Is your eye wicked because I am good? What then can we say? St. John Chrysostom. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no one who justifies himself or blames others in this way. Perish the thought. The place is pure and free from envy and jealousy. And this is now a corrective, I think, for us today. In its historical context, we can now understand it with the apostles getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. In its historical context, we can understand it. In Matthew writing this down for the early Christian community, Gentiles now coming in into the communion of the Lord. But now we can then apply it to our situation today. And I, I just speak with those who are maybe have been really dedicated to your church, really involved, the ladies' guild, you're involved with distribution of food, you're, you're doing things in your community, you're a catechist. We have an illness in our church. Um, and I, I like to call it the, my real estate syndrome, my real estate. Now you're in, maybe in your community, nobody does anything. This is totally non-applicable, but in my community here, you always have people involved that have their particular area of expertise and
1: work, but unfortunately
0: I make the pancake. Look, I make the batter. And nobody knows how to make pancake batter but myself, right? I'm the only one that knows how to make it. Get out of my way. I'll take care of it. Please, please. I'll take care of it. I make it on Friday night. And then we freeze it or we put it in the refrigerator for Sunday morning. Nobody. I do it on Friday night. This is when I do it. I have my time. It's in my home. I, I'll bring it. Leave me alone. Okay? My real estate syndrome. If If you yourself have experienced the my real estate syndrome either because you are a my real estate person or maybe because nobody will let you participate Mm -hmm. um this is a great parable that's a corrective to our churches that the whole your ministry that you were given is given to you not for yourself just like jerusalem wasn't for jerusalem jerusalem was for the whole world the jews were not for the jews they were to be a light to the nations yeah your pancake batter may be very good, but I'm telling you, it tastes like ashes because you've putrefied your recipe with selfishness, with pride, uh, and so forth. And your goal, ministry of pancake, it might be a really great ministry, by the way, is given to you by the Lord. It's given to you so that other people can learn how to make the pancake batter. Other people can learn how to stir the spaghetti in your pot. Other people can begin to learn how to make the meatballs. Not because you washed your hands of it. Fine, Father Hezekiah, fine, let somebody else do it. I'm so sick and tired of it, which is the other end. The, 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 this, the, my real syndrome also has another ugly side to the coin. And it's, the, I'm taking my ball and going home side of it. Yeah. Because when somebody's done it for 30 years, and I throw their hands up, nobody will ever help. Nobody will I try to get other people up nobody will help, nobody will help, nobody will help. Nobody will help. Nobody will help. Nobody will help. That's because you're doing something wrong. It's not their fault. It's because you haven't found the way to invite the other person to enjoy the banquet that you've been feasting on the whole time. Do you enjoy doing it? You must have. You've been doing it for 30 years. So, first of all, don't make it a a point of contention in the midst of nobody's going to want to participate in that. Nobody's helped me for 30 years. Why would anybody want to help you? No. So first of all, bring joy, but then open that ministry up to other people who can then take on responsibility and do this. Not so that you don't have to, don't you dare run away so that they can, you can hold their hand and they can hold your hand and together you can do the ministry of the Lord. Yeah, I can't, I can't miss this path. I can lose, move on from this passage without sharing the most famous homily in the history of the church, that of St. John Chrysostom, who says, It's his Paschal homily. I've shared it before with you, but in case you haven't, or in case you have, it's worth listening to again. Because this homily is so famous that no Byzantine priest dares preach on Easter. That's right. You heard it right. Byzantine priests do not preach a homily on Easter. What? Why? Because it's already been preached. We proclaim the homily of St. John Chrysostom on Easter Sunday, every year, as our homily. And it goes like this. Let all pious men and all lovers of God rejoice in the splendor of this feast. Let the wise servants blissfully enter into the joy of their Lord. Let those who have borne the burden of Lent now receive their pay. And those who have toiled since the first hour, let them now receive their due reward. Let anyone who came after the third hour be grateful to join in the feast. And those who may have come after the sixth hour, let them not be afraid of being too late. For the Lord is gracious, and he he receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him who comes at the eleventh hour as well as to him who has toiled since the first. Yes, he has pity on the last, and he serves the first. He rewards the one and is generous to the other. He repays the deed and praises the effort. Come, you all. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You the first and you the last receive alike your reward. You rich and you poor dance together. You sober and you weakly and celebrate the day. You who have kept the fast and you who have not rejoice today. The table is richly laden. Enjoy its royal banquet. The calf is a fatted one. Let no one go away hungry. All of you enjoy the banquet of faith. All of you receive the riches of his goodness. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? I have chills. <laughs> he goes, okay, I have to get the la- then one more paragraph of it. Let no one grieve over his poverty. For the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep over his sins. For pardon has shown forth from the grave. Let no one fear death. For the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He has despoiled Hades by going down into its kingdom. He has angered it by allowing it to taste of his flesh. When Isaiah foresaw all this, he cried out, Oh, Hades, you have been angered by encountering him in the netherworld. And the homily goes on is, is quite wow. amazing. But there you go. The I'm first like seriously analyzed.
1: tearing up. I mean, it's just so... Incredible. When you, I mean, like when you think about it that way, when you listen to Saint John Chrysostom ta- preach about it that way, I mean, like, how could we possibly get upset over somebody coming at the eleventh hour?
0: Mm. We cannot. We must turn it around, for our ways must be His ways, not mm. our ways. And that person comes at the eleventh hour. Rejoice, and welcome them into the full ministry which you have been engaged in in your life you should be looking on at church on sundays on the weekdays whenever you're you're always looking who has god put before me that i might bring into the ministry of the lord that they might live out their vocation alongside my ministry
1: yeah well as saint paul says in the second reading only conduct yourselves in a way worthy of the gospel of christ
0: there it is let's turn to their philippians chapter one yes
1: yep Philippians chapter one, we're starting um, sort of, I guess, a little more than halfway through verse 20.
0: Yeah. And then we go verse 20 through 24.
1: Yep. And then skip to 27.
0: We skip to 27. Okay. I guess 25 and 26 is done. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. Let's go ahead and start with uh, verse 20.
1: Okay. Brothers and sisters or brethren, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, life is Christ and death is gain. If I go on living in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I shall choose. I am caught between the two. I long to depart this life and be with Christ, for that is far better. Yet that I remain in the flesh is more necessary for your benefit. Only conduct yourselves in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ,
0: yeah, I just we'll to bring to that that first verse there that we have in verse 20, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether life or death. but and, and I, I've said this over over and over again uh today is about doing something yeah about the situation we find ourselves in. Cry out to the Lord, He is near. um seek his ways uh and so forth saint john chrysostom we might as well finish up um with with the man man. of the hour (laughs) one must not suppose that he is he is demeaning this life he is not saying that since there is nothing good for us here we might as well do away with ourselves not at all there can be profit even here if we live not toward this life finally but toward that other toward the jerusalem which is to come as Isaiah spoke about in chapter 55 in our Old Testament reading. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.